How's everybody doing this evening? Doing well? Yeah. Good, good. Uh, let's just uh, let's give the Lord some more praise. Give him a round of applause after that time of worship. Well, we're going to dive right into our Bible study tonight. Raise your hand if you need a Bible. And we've got some fine gentlemen now coming down the aisles now with Bibles. You're going to need it tonight. We're going to be reading through a couple different passages tonight. My name is Austin. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone Chapel. Would love the opportunity to meet you if I don't know you and would love to chat with you after service. So don't hesitate to come on up and introduce yourself and would love the opportunity to meet you. Want to welcome those who are viewing online on our Young Adults Facebook page. Maybe you're at college. Hope you're tuning in. Grab your Bibles. And we're looking forward to our Bible study tonight. Uh, If you haven't been here with us, let me catch you up to speed just a little bit. We are going through a series called When Things Don't Go As Planned. Last week, we looked at the life of Joseph. His life obviously didn't go quite according to his plan. He was hated by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. He was then taken to Egypt. He was then accused of something he didn't do. He was placed into prison. He was there somewhere between two to ten years and then would later get out of prison, become governor over all of Egypt, be reconciled to his brothers. What a story. Things didn't quite go as planned for Joseph, yet God had a specific purpose for Joseph's life. Our five points from last week were commit whatever you do to the Lord. Commit whatever you do to the Lord. That was our theme verse. So let me just put our theme verse on the screen for you there. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. That's our theme verse out of Proverbs chapter 16. Let's all say it together on the count of three. One, two, three. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. This is our theme verse out of Proverbs 16. And we saw that in Joseph's specific instance, he might not have necessarily thought that this is how his life was going to go, but God divinely directed his path even though his circumstances at times weren't so great. So our first point was commit whatever you do to the Lord. Commit whatever you do to the Lord. No matter what season you're in, no matter what job you're working, you might not like the season of life that you're currently in, but take it day by day. Wake up and say, Lord, I'm going to commit this day to you. Point number two was to honor the Lord in your circumstance, no matter how good or bad it might be. Joseph was accused of something he didn't do, yet he resolved in his heart, I'm going to honor the Lord in my circumstance, though my circumstance right now in prison is not the best of situations. But he resolved, I'm going to honor the Lord. Our third point, when things don't go as planned, how do we respond as Christians is to resist the temptation to complain about your circumstance. This one always hits me because I can be a good complainer. That's one of my spiritual gifts. I complain very well when things aren't going well, but the Lord calls us, listen, I've placed you maybe in a specific season for a specific purpose. You might not know the purpose yet, but don't complain and give it to the Lord. The fourth thing we learned was remember that God's silence does not equate God's absence. This is something so important to remember because right now in your season of life, You might not feel like you're hearing from the Lord. The Lord seems silent in your situation. Just as I'm sure Joseph in prison for three plus years was thinking, God, where are you? 
Where are you in my situation? I'm in prison. I don't feel close to you. And we can oftentimes base our relationship uh, with the Lord based off of feeling. And that's not what the Lord calls us to do because our feelings are very deceptive. Our feelings are so up and down. Our emotions are a roller coaster at, roller coaster at times. Don't trust your feelings, but trust in the Lord. Remember that God's silence, just because he's silent, doesn't mean that he's absent. He's there. He sees He knows your situation. And the fifth and final thing we saw from Joseph's life, when things don't go according to the plan, recognize that God's purpose in his plan is greater than we understand. Joseph only saw one piece of the puzzle at a time while the Lord saw the whole picture. And so Joseph had to remember, I'm only seeing a piece of my life right now, but God has a greater purpose in mind. Recognize that God sees the whole picture. We only see a piece of the timeline. Trust in the Lord. So this is our series and we're going to continue in our series tonight and over the next couple of weeks or so. And as we make our way through this series, my goal is to glean some more timely principles to help us answer this question. As a Christian, how should I respond in life when things don't go as planned? And so tonight we're going to be looking at the character of Daniel. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel to the first chapter, Daniel chapter 1. As you're turning there, just a little bit of context and background. The Babylonian Empire is the dominant kingdom at the beginning of this book. So as we enter ourselves into chapter 1 of the book of Daniel, the Babylonian Empire is the dominant world force. The Persian Empire then at the end of the book becomes the dominant world power. But as we enter into Daniel chapter 1, Babylon is the world force at this time, and Nebuchadnezzar is their king. Nebuchadnezzar, his name means, may Nabu protect the crown. Nabu was one of their false gods, not a uh, Star Wars planet, (laughs) but was one of their false gods that they worshipped, and Nebuchadnezzar, his name meant Nabu protects the crown. And so Babylon was becoming a world force at this time, and Nebuchadnezzar, along with the kingdom of Babylon, besieged Israel three different times. The first time was in 606 BC. We know that it was that time because the very, the very first, first verse in Daniel chapter 1 says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Jehoiakim started to uh, reign in Judah in 609 BC. Daniel chapter 1 says that it's the third year of his reign, so this puts the date at 606 BC when Nebuchadnezzar first sieges the land of Judah. At this time, Nebuchadnezzar uh, takes captive Daniel and some of his friends along with tens of thousands of Jews. That was his first siege over the land of Judah. The second siege came in 597 BC. Uh, Along with that uh, captivity, he took King Jehoiachin, one of the kings of Judah, and the prophet Ezekiel, where we get our book of Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel was then taken captive in the second siege of Judah. And the third and final siege of Judah, that was 586 BC. King Zedekiah of Judah was taken captive at that time. And Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, was completely destroyed. 586 BC. Jerusalem completely destroyed. Those are the three sieges of Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon over Judah. So here, we place ourselves in 606 BC, Nebuchadnezzar's first siege over the land of Judah. And he takes captive Daniel 
after whom this uh, book was named and written by, Daniel and his three friends, who we'll be introduced to in just a moment, were taken captive at this time, taken 900 miles from Judah to modern-day Iraq, the capital city of Babylon. 900 miles on foot through desert. All right, just picture that walk. It's about the distance from Washington, D.C. to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So if that gives any context to help you out, you're walking 900 miles from D.C. to Fort Lauderdale through desert. That is Daniel and his friends being taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. So obviously, how did things not go according to the plan? Let me just put Daniel chapter 1 up there. How did things not go according to the plan for Daniel? Seems pretty obvious. Taken captive, he was then forced to assimilate into a different culture with different family, a different language, different society, different laws, different false gods. And this was Daniel taken from familiarity. uh, Scholars believe that Daniel was roughly 15 years old and his three friends, 15 years old at the time they're taken captive from Judah to Babylon, taken from his family, taken from his home, taken from his Xbox, taken from Netflix, taken from everything he once knew and was familiar with, taken to a foreign land with foreign everything, you name it, foreign language, foreign people, foreign culture, foreign society, foreign kingdom. I don't think Daniel's plans really had that within his schedule. Let me be taken captive and be taken to a foreign land where I know zero about the culture or the land. Every Jewish male's dream was just to grow up, have some decent land, have a few animals, marry a beautiful woman, women, a woman and, and marry, uh, not, not women, plural, I, I said wo- woman, a, a woman, and have children and have a Jewish boy named uh, Mishkaya. I totally just made that up. Um, I don't know if that's a Hebrew boy's name. But that, you get the picture. I mean, just as we are in this day, you, you, you envision just growing up with an education, having a decent job, marrying a, a beautiful man or a woman, and having kids, and, and having a decent home, and just being comfortable where you live. This was Daniel. This was every Jewish male. But he was stripped from that area, stripped from everything he knew and taken to a foreign land called Babylon. And he was expected to assimilate himself into that culture. And yet Daniel remained unwavering in his devotion to the Lord. I mean, can you imagine? Uprooted from your family and your home, your church and everything that you once knew and taken to a foreign land... And yet, as Daniel did, remain unwavering in your devotion to the Lord, no matter how hard that foreign country tried to assimilate you into that culture, Daniel remained devoted to his God. And I, like Daniel, would rather live a man of principle in my faith than live a man of compromise in my walk, no matter how difficult it might be. We need to be a generation of Daniels. And I don't know if you have kids in the room, but if, you, if not kids in this room, but kids in, you know, in your house. If you have kids, you need to be raising them to be a generation of Daniels. To be unwavering in your faith, no matter how hard the pressure might be to conform 
to a different culture and a different society. This was Daniel. So we're going to read the first eight verses of Daniel chapter 1, then we'll pray and then we'll dive in and we'll, we'll see what God has for us tonight. So Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel, and some of the king's descendants, and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies, and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Verse 8, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Let's pause there and pray. Lord, we commit our Bible study to you now. We pray that you would be with us, Lord. Lord, Life is going to throw us a lot of curveballs. Life is going to be confusing at times. Lord, we are going to need direction and clarity. So I pray that Daniel, the story of Daniel, would be encouraging to us, Lord, that you would help us to understand what your plan and purpose for our lives is, Lord. When things don't go as planned, we look to you, and we ask that you would bring clarity where there's confusion. We ask that you would bring peace and comfort where there is chaos. We ask that you would rule and reign over our lives. We commit this Bible study to you now, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Before the Babylonian Empire was the Assyrian Empire. They were the world-dominant power. The Assyrians took captive uh, a lot of the Israelites in the northern kingdom of Israel. So Israel at this time is divided. Israel is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. The Assyrian power... This is how they would subjugate a nation. They would take women, children, and men captive, and they were a barbaric people. They were a brutal force. You did not want to mess with the Assyrians because this is how they would subjugate a nation. They would rape the women, they would enslave the children, and they would skin the men alive. That was the Assyrians. And the way they would subjugate the nation was they would then supplant Assyrian people within the nation of Israel. They would intermingle, intermarry, and thus create subjugation to their force called the Assyrian Empire by intermingling themselves with the nation they also take captive. That was the Assyrians. Then the Babylonians come along. They take over this world power known as the Assyrian Empire They have a totally different idea of how to subjugate a nation to uh, conform them to their ideologies and principles and to worship their gods. This is what they would do. They would not 
um, intermingle with the people they're taking captive. Rather, they would take people captive, isolate them from everything they knew, like I mentioned, and bring them to Babylon in hopes to allure them by the Babylonian beauty. They would try to seduce people to think that Babylon was this beautiful place and such it was. Babylon at this time was 200 square miles, so that's about three times the size of D.C., was, uh, had 60 miles of walls, 300 feet high and 80 feet thick. They would have chariot races upon the walls, 100 brass gates, 220 tall towers. The, Euphra- the Euphrates River ran through beautiful Babylon, and they diverted the Euphrates River through and around the city of Babylon as a moat for extra protection. They also had a, a ziggurat, a 400-foot-high pyramid with terraced levels where they would have trees and flowers and gardens upon each terrace. It was so beautiful, it was known as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Babylon was beautiful. They would capture the Jews from Judah isolate them from their familiar, familiar lifestyles at home in Judah, bring them to beautiful, lush Babylon. I mean, just imagine this with me. You're traveling 900 miles through desert and then entering beautiful, lush Babylon. It's like entering Disney World. If you've ever been to Disney World, the place is magical. I mean, just picture wonderful elves and Oompa Loompas frolicking, holding beautiful cotton candy. That was a little more creepy than I intended it to be. (laughs) Oompa Loompas and and elves. That's a little scary, actually. Forget that. Beautiful Disney World. As you walk into Magic Kingdom, my wife loves Disney World. My my in-laws, they love Disney World. They've often uh, vacationed to Disney World, and they, they just love it. It seduces them to go on a ride uh, called It's a Small World. That ride should be called It's a Creepy World. (laughs) That ride, if you've ever been on It's a Small World, uh, you sit in this raft and it takes you through a maze of water as creepy little uh, animated puppets sing to you. It's a small world after all. And I'm sitting there with my wife and in-laws and I've been, you know, I was married at the time for like a year and, and they're, they're, they're loving this. I mean, it, they're, they're, as they, they have their hands folded and just watching the creepy animated puppets singing It's a Small World. And I'm thinking, this is insane. This is so weird. I mean, this is creepy. I mean, it's like a 20-minute ride. It was... I still have nightmares to this day. It's a creepy world. I mean, that, oh, It's a Small World is not is not seducing uh, one bit to me. Uh, But overall, Disney World is quite a magical place. So uh, I digress. Babylon was this beautiful, lush place where after 900 miles of walking through desert, they would enter beautiful Babylon and be seduced by the beautiful culture around them. Then after a while, the Jewish people would begin to think, this is better than home. And that way the Babylonians would then introduce you to their culture, to their gods, to their society, to their laws, and you would begin to feel right at home. 
That is how Babylon brilliantly subjugated the nations that they overran. They would take you captive, bring you to beautiful Babylon, and you would be seduced by the beautiful territory. And, And this was Babylon's M.O., to seduce you and to assimilate you into its culture by way of allurement. And then slowly you would be ju- just begin to think, this is better than what we had back home. And you'd begin to fall in love with the people who took you captive. A weird thought, but you'd begin to fall in love with your captors and conform to their society. This was Babylon. It's interesting to note that when the 70 years of of, uh, Judah's captivity was over, most people stayed. When you had the opportunity to go home, 70 years is over, Persia overtakes Babylon, they say, you guys can go home. Most people say, we actually like it right here in Babylon, and they stay. But Daniel was different. Daniel resolved in his heart That yes, though I might be in Babylon, Babylon will never be in me. We have to have this same mindset because we are living in a Babylon today where the culture around us is trying to conform us into their mold where we even start to begin to think that the world has it right and we begin to form and conform our ways and our mindsets and our behavior to what the world offers more than what the Lord offers us. So principle number one for tonight, but our, in our ongoing series, this is principle number six, don't compromise on your convictions or conform to the culture. When things don't go as planned, don't compromise on your convictions and conform to the culture because I've seen it in my own life when things aren't going according to your plan and you become frustrated A lot of times, oftentimes, people abandoned what they were once familiar with in Scripture and what they once had in Christ, and they begin to conform to the ways of the world. It's very easy when your life isn't going quite how you planned and purposed it to go to allow that frustration to lead to your conformity. And this was the Jewish people, aside from Babylon and his three friends. So when things aren't going according to your plan and when things aren't really going how you'd like them to be, remember this principle, don't compromise on your convictions and don't conform to the ways of the world. The Babylonians had three tactics that they would use to help conform you into their pattern. The first was isolation. The second was indoctrination. And the third was identification. And we're going to go through these three things. The way that Babylon would try to mold and shape and conform the Jewish people to their society, to their laws, to their gods, first was isolation. As I mentioned, they would pull you away from everything you were familiar with and they would place you within the culture, getting you away from what you once knew, hoping that you would adopt what you know now. Whoever said that, um, uh, whoever said the saying, um, absence makes the heart grow fonder, Uh, probably weren't gone for very long because when you're gone for a long period of time, you start to forget the love and the value that you once had in something or someone. I mean, just this is probably a bad example, but just think of your cell phone. If you've been away from your cell phone for a day, I mean, you you start to to shake. I mean, you need need your phone. 
And you wonder, like, I've had, I haven't had my phone all day. I need to check the gram. I need to check my social media. I, my, my phone's probably blowing up with text because I'm so popular and I need to get to my phone. But after like a week, I don't know if you've gone on like a mission trip or something and you don't have your phone. After a week or after a month, you start to realize like I was so dependent on my phone and I really don't even need it to function. Kind of same thing with television. I like the shows. I like popping the old Netflix on and seeing what's on. I mean, I'm a, I'm a TV guy, all right? I feel comforted when I'm just sitting on the couch watching a good show, popping some popcorn. But when you're away from your TV for a month or a week or you've been on vacation, you didn't have a TV, you've been on a mission trip, whatever might have separated you from that beloved box on your uh, table there, you start to realize, I didn't even miss that thing. I don't even need the TV. I don't even need my shows. I don't even need that thing. And so when you're gone for a long period of time from something that you once knew and were familiar with, you start to forget about it. You start to realize you didn't even need it. This was Babylon. They would isolate you, bring you far away from your home. And then when you became assimilated with the culture, you would begin to forget the value and the love you once had for your hometown. They would isolate you. The second thing was they would indoctrinate you. And here's what they would do. Look at verses uh, 3 and 4. Look at verse 3 and 4 of chapter 1. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking. So this is describing Daniel and his friends. But good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. So they would teach then the Jewish people their language. They would teach them uh, their, their educational system. They would indoctrinate them with education by teaching them the language, by teaching them how to write in Babylonian script. And education obviously is a good thing, but education can actually be a detrimental thing when it has purposes of propaganda, and, and we see, we've seen this all throughout history, believe it or not. Um, in the 1930s, we don't even have to look too far, Nazi Germany, Hitler's youth movement, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but Hitler had a youth movement where he would have children and teenagers lined up to hear all of his lies to perpetrate uh, a lie that they were the superior race. Uh, teachers also started to even join the Nazi Teachers Association to then believe and perpetrate this even further to the point where in their schools they would revise history and biology to teach that they were actually the superior race and propagate within the children's hearts and minds a hatred for other people. This was real in the 1930s. Hitler and Mein Kampf, he said this on page 376, through clever and constant application of propaganda, people can be made to see paradise as hell and also the other way around. Scary stuff. And this stuff is going on in our day. Teachers in schools are teaching, for example, the evolutionary theory as fact. It's not a fact. There's a reason it's called a theory. But then you begin to believe, if I don't believe this, you're considered an idiot. And teachers in schools, if you're in the public school system, you're in college, and they're teaching the evolutionary theory as fact, and if you don't conform to this theory, 
and, and you don't uh, think of this theory as fact as well, you are considered an idiot and you're belittled for that. I mean, it's the same thing with same-sex marriage. The Bible calls homosexuality and same-sex, mar- same-sex marriage a sin. But our media now is normalizing it through television shows and through movies and through commercials. And they are normalizing it to raise the next generation to accept it and receive it, not as sin as the Bible declares it. We love the homosexual community. They need Christ just as I, a sinner, needs Christ. But it's a sin. And our generation is starting to accept and receive it as something normal because our media is normalizing it. This is happening in our day where we are being indoctrinated to think things that are false as though they were true. And even though the majority might come alongside of something as true or as factual, doesn't necessarily make it factual. There was an interesting study done uh, pretty recently, a psychologist uh, named Ruth Berenda and her associates, they carried out this experiment designed to show um, how a person handled uh, group pressure. And what they did was they brought in groups of 10 people, teenagers, they brought uh, groups of 10 teenagers into a classroom, and the instructions were simple. The instructions given by a teacher were to, after she drew a few different lines on a board, all different lengths, She told the students, simple instructions, when I point to the longest line, you raise your hand. And so simple enough, what one out of the 10 people didn't know was that the other nine were instructed not to raise their hand for the longest line, but to raise their hand for the second longest line. So here the the experiment goes. Uh, The teacher points to the second longest line, and as instructed prior the nine people raised their hand to the second longest line. 75% of the time, the one person who had no idea what was going on would look around and conform his mindset to the other people and also raise his hand even though he knew that wasn't the longest line. 75% of the groups they studied. And I've been in this situation too. You don't want to be left out. You don't, want to be, uh, you don't want to seem as the misfit. You want to fit in, understandable. And so oftentimes we go along with the majority and conform our behavior and our mindset to the majority. This was Babylon. We're going to teach you our ways. We're going to teach you our laws. We're going to teach you our, our, our script. We're going to teach you our language. And we are going to give you the mindset of a Babylonian so that you can then go out into the world and represent Babylon, indoctrination. The third thing was isolation. Look at verses 6 through 7. Verse 6 and 7. Sorry, did I say isolation? I meant identification, if I didn't say that. Identification was the third thing. Look at verses 6 through 7. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So identification was their third form of conformity. 
How are we going to get these Jewish people to believe the Babylonian mindset and perceive the world through Babylonian lenses? We're going to change their names. So to Daniel, he gives the name Belteshazzar. Daniel in the Hebrew means God is my judge. Belteshazzar means may Bel protect my life. So they give Daniel a new name. No longer are you going to be referred to as the God of the Hebrews, the one true God. We're going to give you another name. He also gave the name Hananiah. He gave him the name Shadrach. Hananiah in the Hebrew means the Lord is gracious. We're going to change that up on you, Hananiah. We're going to give you the name Shadrach, meaning illuminated by the sun god Rock. He gave the name Mishael, the name Meshach. Mishael means who is like the Lord, but his new name, Meshach, means who is like Aku, a false god of the Babylonians. He gave the name Azariah. In the Hebrew, his name means the Lord helps. He gave him the name Abednego, meaning a servant of Nabu, another one of their false gods. He changes their identity. He changes their names. And church, the world will try to tell you who you are. Through media, through magazines, through television, through commercials, through social media, the world is trying to tell you what you should look like, what you should believe, and they're giving you a new identity. Never forget who you are in Christ. Never forget who you are in the Lord when you place your faith and you place your trust in Jesus. He calls you a child of God, and then he says, I know what's best for you. And I want you to fellowship with me. I want relationship with you. I want you to stay in my word. I want you to stay in communion with me. But we are so attracted to the noise of the world that we are trying to fit a mold that the world has set for us when all the while God is saying, don't, tell, don't let the world tell you who you are or who you should be. Let me identify you and define you. The world is trying to give you a new identity. And we have to be vigilant, church. We have to be aware of the Babylonian tactics in our day. Isolation, indoctrination, identification. Because the same tactics that Babylon is using are the same tactics that the world is trying to use on us. Stay vigilant, be aware, get into God's word. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed by the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So when things aren't going according to plan, don't compromise on your convictions and don't conform to the culture. Romans 12, 2. Don't conform yourself to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our second and last principle comes from Daniel chapter 6. Just turn a couple pages to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel goes from a 15-year-old boy to an 80-year-old man. The book covers a period of 70 years. Daniel, at this point in Daniel chapter 6, is roughly 80, 81, 82 years old. And the Persian Empire has now gained control over the Babylonian Empire. They will be the dominant world power for the next 200 years, the Persian Empire. So let's read chapter 6, verses 1 through 18 to glean our next principle here. Daniel chapter 6, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom and over these three governors of whom Daniel was, Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. 
Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they couldn't find, no, couldn't find a charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. Kind of buttering him up here. King Darius, live forever, my king. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God, and they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within thirty days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, I find that funny, they're tattling on this guy, that Daniel, who was one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the, till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians, that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Pause there with me. So you guys know this story. Daniel is roughly 80 years old, and he has some people, because Daniel is a faithful man, he has favor in the eyes of the king, they don't like Daniel, they tattle on him. They go to the king first and say, listen, set up a decree that you must be prayed to for 30 days. If anybody else is caught praying to any other god, let's throw him into a den of lions, okay? What I find funny is the king signs it, but it's only for 30 days. I mean, why not just for like a year? I mean, if you're going to be prayed to and praised, 30 days seems a little short to me. So the king signs this decree. They then know that Daniel's a man of faith to his God. They catch him praying. They report back to the king and say, hey, king, Daniel kind of broke your rule here, so we should throw him into a den of lions. The king signs this decree. In that culture, even though the king signed something, it was law. The king couldn't even himself 
uh, resign that law back. He, he has to go through with it. He throws Daniel to a den of lions. The, the uh, stone rolls over the hole. The, the, the king shouts to Daniel before the stone rolls over. May God, may your God protect you. And you know the rest of the story. I'm not going to read the chapter. I'll just summarize it. God sends an angel to shut the mouths of lions. Daniel is saved. The king wakes up the next morning, runs to the tomb, shouts, Daniel, are you still alive? And he says, O king, live forever. My God, whom I serve, sent an angel to shut the mouths of lions. This was Daniel. So our seventh principle, commune with God through consistent communication. Daniel obviously does not have in his plans to be thrown to a den of lions. Things are not going well for him. And yet I find it so encouraging to know that though Daniel knew the law of the Babylonians said something contrary to to his belief, he still prayed to the Lord. Church, this is so simple, but yet we neglect to do it so often. When things aren't going according to your plan, pray, pray, pray. Be persistent in prayer. Be persistent in your prayer life with the Lord when things are good, when things are bad, when things aren't going well. Maybe you're in a situation now where things aren't going according to the plan because your mom or dad passed away. Or maybe there is a medical condition within your family and it's causing a lot of stress. Maybe work isn't going so well. Maybe you had to break off a precious relationship that you didn't foresee, whatever season of life you might be in, pray, pray, pray. Pray continually. The Lord calls us as his children to come before him and constantly commune with him. Why? Because he loves us and he knows what's best for us as our heavenly father. Be persistent in prayer. In Matthew chapter 7, I love this story. It's one of, the, uh, ser- uh, it's one of Jesus' most popular sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. And Jesus tells this story of a son who comes to his father asking for, for bread. And he says, if, a, if one of your children came to you and asked for bread, would you give them a stone? He's asking a hypothetical question, obviously. If one of your children came to you and asked for bread, would you give them a stone? No. And he says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? Your heavenly father loves to bless you and to have relationship with you through his son, Jesus, because he loves you because he's a good father. Now we have to understand that Persistent prayer must be met with three things. If you're taking notes quickly, persistent prayer must be met with the right motives. In the book of James, James says, you don't have what you ask for because you ask with wrong motives, wanting to spend what you get on your own pleasures. A good question to continually ask yourself in your prayer life is, are my prayers mainly motivated by my own personal pleasure or by God's glorification? Are my prayers mainly motivated by what I can get from this or are my prayers motivated by Lord? No matter what the outcome is, I want you to receive all the glory. Persistent prayer must be met with the right motives. Persistent prayer must be met with the right perspective. 
We have to have the right perspective when we come to God within our prayer life. In that same passage in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? The operative phrase there is good gifts. Because we assume that everything we ask for is good. We assume in presenting our requests to him that everything we ask for is good. I mean, you guys know this game. When you were kids and you asked for something to your mom and dad, Mom, I know it's eight in the morning, I have to go to school, but can I have three bowls of ice cream and a root beer float? Your mom says, uh, no. You're like, Mom, but why? It's so good, it tastes so good, I really want it, I know it's so good. But your parent, being the loving mom or dad that they were, know that that's not what's best for you in the morning. Though you might have perceived that to be good for the time, your parent knew better that that wasn't what was best for you at the time. So when we present our prayers to the Lord, we must maintain the right perspective that God is going to give us what is good in his estimation and not our own. God is going to give us what is good in his estimation because he knows what's best for us and we don't. Maintain the right perspective, also in persistent prayer, maintain the right will, that obviously God's will, your be done. I love when Jesus prays that in the garden. Not my will, but your will be done. But church, pray to the Lord and be persistent in prayer because your heavenly Father loves to bless his children. I've never seen anyone disappointed who ran to God with prayer as their first resort. And church, when you have kids, if the Lord chooses to bless you, one of the best things you can leave your children with is your example of prayer. It's one of the best things that my mom has ever left me, her example of prayer. I would run to my mom with the silliest of stuff. I'd say, Mom, I lost this. Mom, I can't find this. Mom, can you help me? She would always ask me, have you prayed about it? It was so annoying. <laughs> mom, no, I haven't prayed about it. I lost my car toy, and I just want your help. But she would always challenge me whenever I needed help, whenever I was in trouble, to use prayer as a first resort. Oftentimes, we like to control everything. We like to put all of our eggs in the basket when we're in trouble, when we're in a chaotic moment. We like to control everything, and then we pray about it. We like to get all of our, our ducks in a row. We like to do stuff. I'm in this trouble, I'm in this chaotic moment, I'm in this stressful situation, what can I practically do to get myself out of it? And then later down the road, we remember to pray about it. Always make prayer your first priority. Dwight L. Moody said that some people think God is troubled by our constant coming and asking, but the way to trouble God is to never come at all. And then it's also been said, um, I, think, I think it was John Wesley who said, storm the throne of grace and persevere therein and mercy will come down. If you need direction, ask him. If you're in a situation where you need clarity about your walk or your life, ask him for clarity. If you need wisdom or discernment about a certain situation, maybe you're trying to, uh, trying to find a job or maybe you're trying to discern uh, whether or not you should pursue this relationship, ask the Lord, have you prayed about it? Have you prayed about it? Have you dedicated that something or that someone to prayer? The Lord honors prayer and you will be blown away by the power of prayer. This was Daniel when things weren't going his way. He resolved, I'm going to commune with God 
with consistent communication. Three times a day. I'm so challenged by that. Because Jesus prayed in the morning to the Lord. And how often do I miss those times with the Lord? And he was the son of God. How much more then do we need it? So those are our two principles for tonight. Don't compromise on your convictions. Don't conform to the culture when things aren't going well, when things aren't going according to your plan. And then secondly, or our seventh principle is commune with God with consistent and constant communication. He will blow you away with his power. That's Daniel for us. Things didn't go according to his plan. Taken from all that he knew from home and dumped into Babylon and was forced to assimilate to their society and culture, but he was a man who resolved in his heart, I'm not going to conform to the pattern of this world, like Romans 12, 2 says, and I'm going to pray in everything. Philippians 4, 6 says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything. Not when times are going well, not when times are bad, not when life is confusing, not when your season of life is messy, not when you can't make decisions, not when work is rough, not when work is good, not when you're making good money, not when you're poor. Pray in everything. In all situations of life, in all seasons of life, in all confusion of life, though life might be confusing for you, though life might be good for you, Pray in everything. The Lord will honor a man of prayer, a woman of prayer, when you dedicate something or someone to him and not to yourself. So what to do when things aren't going as planned? Don't conform to the culture. Be not uh, conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and pray, pray, pray. Let's do that right now. Lord, we come to you now because... Someone tonight is in a season of life that is confusing. We come to you now because we need you and we need your wisdom, Lord. Lord, we don't want to conform to this culture. We don't want to conform to the pattern of this world. But Lord, we want to honor you in all that we say and do. In everything, Lord, we want to commit it to you. And Lord, we just pray now and we dedicate our situation and our season of life to you. Lord, where there is confusion, you will bring peace and clarity when we give give it to you and we dedicate it to you. Maybe life is good right now. Let us not neglect prayer with you. Let us not become comfortable, but let us always remain humbled before you in prayer, giving everything to you. So I pray for this group right now, Lord. I ask that you would meet us, that you would show yourself to us in a powerful way, Lord, that you would help us in our confusing times when life isn't going as planned, Lord, that you would bring clarity and peace and discernment and wisdom. You see the whole picture, and so we're just going to trust you, Lord. We're going to throw all of our weight into you. We're going to press into you, Lord. We're going to say, Lord, take my situation. I give it to you now. We love you, Lord, and we know that You will work everything out for the good of those who love you. So we commit our Bible study to you now. Pray that you would protect us as we go about our work week. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen.